But what I'm going to do instead is just kind of work it into my normal prayer uh, that we have over God's Word. And so if you will, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. And we are going to be looking at verses 13 through 15 today. So just a short passage. Before we do that, let's go to the work to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come to you this morning. We come to you with many things. As this past week has been a very busy week in our world, in our own nation, and even really close to us here, as we are still dealing with a worldwide pandemic, we are watching upheaval in other parts of the world that directly affects people in your church, and that's been happening for centuries, even in other places that won't make the news. We pray We know that there have been flooding here locally and then more severe in Tennessee where there's just a big loss of of people and property. And so we come this morning with many of these things weighing heavy on us, but we also come to a sovereign God who knows all things, who isn't surprised by anything, who has a plan that is right and good. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come together today, that you would help us to submit to your decree. That we wouldn't kick against it. That we wouldn't question you. That we would dare not seek to counsel you. But we would only sit and learn from you. And to that end, Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning that you would teach us from it. Because as those who are called your people through no act of our own, on one hand, we have a desire to learn from you and to open your word and be changed by it. And on the other, we seek to counsel you, not thinking that you've made the right decisions all the time. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take that part of us that would seek to counsel you and we, you would change it as one who only seeks counsel from you. That we would seek out your word as the only revelation that has been made to us that is completely right and good, all that we need, completely sufficient for us as believers. And so, Lord, as we open it now, we pray that you would be with us, that you would help us, that you would guide us, give us wisdom and understanding, convict us of our sin, that we might grow closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to Isaiah chapter 52, I need to turn there first. We come to the end of Isaiah 52. We're kind of in this, and we have talked about this uh, for the last couple of weeks, kind of leading up to this. We're coming into this fourth and final of the servant songs, and a very popular passage in Isaiah, this last couple of verses of 52, and then basically all of 53. And as I, as I read this, 
It made me think of another story in God's Word from Judges chapter 7. And I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to kind of uh, paraphrase the story in Judges 7. It's one that you're all familiar with, I'm sure. And it's the story of Gideon selecting an army to defeat the Midianites. Gideon started with an army of 32,000, which was still relatively small compared to the Midianite army. But when the Lord looked at that army, he said, the people with you are too many. Telling this to Gideon. Not that your army is too small, Gideon. You should go find some other, self, some other folks that you can win. So, but the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. And listen to the Lord's reasoning. And this is, this is kind of where our text is today. Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. And so the Lord had him whittle his army down from 32,000 to 300. 300. Not 300,000. Just 300. We don't know the size of the Midianite army, but it was large enough for them to not be afraid of Israel's army. They basically came up and parked right beside them. But the Lord won the battle, having them break some pottery, blow some trumpets, and then he caused the Midianites to start killing one another. Why would the Lord do that? So that he could get the glory, so that he alone could be named Savior of his people. And so as we begin this last of the servant songs of Isaiah, we have this very similar theme that we see there with Gideon's small army in order to accomplish the redemption of his people for all time for not only those who would see it in isaiah's day but for those who will see it a thousand years from now when we're gone if the lord continues to wait the lord came himself he gave himself as an eternal sacrifice for his people and he didn't come in power he came as a baby And he didn't die a warrior's death, but he died a shameful death as one who stood condemned. He died on a Roman cross between two common thieves. And yet through his death, he accomplished redemption for his people for all times. So as we look at that text today, we're going to see a contrast between what the world might view as powerful and what the Lord uses to accomplish his redemption. Even in the church, I think a lot of times we forget about the simplicity of the atonement. We'd like nothing more than to add to it in order to suit our own fancies and to satisfy what we perceive as the needs of the world. A lot of times we don't perceive that the world needs Jesus. They need Jesus and these other things. Instead, as we come to the text today, let us... See anew the work of the atonement and the glorification of our Lord Jesus. And we'll look at this. Three main ideas concerning the atonement. A wise atonement. Then a gruesome atonement. And then finally a surprising atonement. So with that, let's look together at the text. Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 13 through verse 15 of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So if you go all the way back, just for a little bit of context, if you go all the way back to 50, the beginning of 51, that's not a whole long way back, but you kind of have, that's where the start of this current section is, or the previous section was, and you read through, you see many acts of power that the Lord could do and would do among His people, right? He, he was, and you can just read through there and kind of find these things. He was to be a light of justice to all the nations. And he even talks about, what does that mean? Well, he was the one that cut the dragon into pieces, is what Isaiah says. Or that he was the one that dried up the sea, these big acts of power. He was going to bear his holy arm so that all the nations would see his salvation. We get the feeling then that he's going to do something monumental, something really big. That the Lord is going to vanquish his enemies or vanquish the enemies of his people in some dramatic way. Which he totally did. But just not in the way that anyone expected. And so when you compare that with our text today and you, and you look then at the whole ministry of Jesus on earth as you look in the Gospels, you see a very consistent kind of pattern of the Lord Jesus accomplishing redemption in a way that we've never Expect. He does this with individual circumstances, and then he does this as a whole. And so in verse 13, we have this command to behold. We must look then carefully as we are commanded to behold these things. So we have to make sure and not miss what's here. I think we often want to attribute the work of salvation to anything but Jesus or Jesus plus these other things. And this passage should not only write our own view, but it should also help us to see how the world sees the work of Christ as well. And that brings me to the first point, the wise atonement. So just a reminder, as we've been working through the book of Isaiah, we've come up to these places that I've called servant songs that have been traditionally called that. We saw one in 42 and 49 and in 50. And these verses we've established are speaking about Jesus, his prophesied coming. And we've seen it speaking about him in very specific ways as we're looking as we're going to look at this song in its entirety, which includes, again, all of 53. We're going to see even more and more New Testament evidence supporting that claim as we even have a story in Acts that we'll read, too, where. Where one of the apostles even says, yes, that's about Jesus. And so we have this, this understanding from the New Testament as well. The overall theme of the whole Bible, of course, is Jesus. But here we see it spelled out very plainly. And so in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. What is this telling us? Well, the word act wisely, when we hear it in the English language, we think a certain thing, right? 
this a Hebrew word that doesn't really translate well into English because, again, when we think of this, when we see, we hear that a person acted wisely, we think of it as near, merely a decision level type of thing, that when a person acts wisely, it's because they've made good decisions, and that is the acting wisely. The outcome of those decisions really isn't that important when we think about that. It's merely just the decisions themselves. But the Hebrew word is a whole lot fuller than that. It has to do with skill. It has to do with outcome. And so it's not only the wise decisions, the right decisions being made, but also the ability to prosper in those decisions. The best decisions and the best outcomes all rode into one word, acting wisely. So when we read that the servant of God acted wisely, we know that not only was his decision the right decision, but it was also accomplished as well. It was a finished thing. As a result of that decision, which we'll read further, understand we understand that decision to be how the atonement was accomplished. And that as, be, as a result of that, he was going to be high and lifted up. He was going to be exalted. There are lots of places in the Bible that speak about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. You know, we regularly quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which talks about the wisdom of God being foolishness to natural man. Essentially saying that were it left up to man, we would have completely chosen a different way than what God chose to do the atonement. We would have thought of this whole other way that would have not been a good thing. We would not have acted wisely. In Isaiah 29, one that we've already looked at, if you want to turn there with me. Isaiah 29. There's a couple of verses there that I think were helpful in understanding this difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. The context of Isaiah 29 is the siege of Jerusalem. But these verses kind of stand on their own. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts is far from me, and their fear of me is, is commanded or is a command taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. The picture here is that God is going to act in a certain way, and it's not going to be a way that would make any sense to us. Because our hearts are someplace else, is what Isaiah says. The Lord is going to act in a way that we couldn't possibly understand. Our wisdom is going to perish. In Job, I alluded to that in my prayer this morning. In Job 38, one of my favorite passages where God answers Job after he's receiving some some quote-unquote wisdom from his friends, God interjects and says, Who is this? that darkens counsel with words without knowledge. Attempting to counsel God as if that would be a thing that we could ever pretend to do. God knows the right way, yet we continually attempt to find our own way. Started all the way back in the garden, continues through to today. 
Jesus' sacrifice in order to purchase the redemption of his people is not a choice that any of us would have made because there's no possible way that the way that Jesus did it, that we could get glory from it. We would rather do it in a way where we could be high and lifted up, where we could be exalted. So when we look at the scriptural way of salvation, there's no pilgrimage that we have to go on. There's no journey. There's no special prayer to recite. There's no special rite of passage for us to go through. There's no quest to attain some certain object so we can have understanding. There's only one command associated with our faith, and it's to repent and believe. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. He's the Savior, not you. So when we look at what the church should do in order to get this message across, there's only one way then to get this message across, right? To to proclaim this message. The proclamation of the gospel found in the word of God. There's no special tricks. There's no secret. Any wisdom we would add to the situation isn't necessary at all. In fact, it's not wanted. It's sinful. So when we read here that the servant Jesus acted wisely concerning the work of salvation for his people, he acted in such a way to accomplish the work he set out to do and then to bring glory to God alone. The following verses, I think, spell that out perfectly, both how he accomplished it and then the reaction to it from the world. That brings me to the second point, a gruesome atonement. Look with me at verse 14. As many were astonished at you, talking about the servant you, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of which the children of mankind. So remember, the servant is going to be high and lifted up. We saw that in 13. And so then there is this great astonishment. It's exactly what you would think, right? He acted wisely. He is going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be exalted. And now we read that he's going to be marred beyond semblance. There's great astonishment as to how this is going to happen. Many were astonished. In order to accomplish the atonement, he is going to become marred. The word there is a think, think of the word disfigured. We can see the extent of that disfigurement then in the next words, beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. Thankfully, I haven't had to deal with anything like this in my own life. But when I read this and I thought about it, it made me think of uh, modern warfare and specifically the transition between what would be like ancient warfare with swords and spears and modern warfare with like explosives and other projectiles. And you see that most in the early 20th century where wars were still being fought like people were holding swords and spears, but they won't, they weren't. They were holding like, you know, metal projectiles and very accurate explosives. Those sorts of things don't mix well with human flesh. 
And so many of the accounts, the accounts of war, if you've read through those, I've read a lot of this kind of history, and you read the letters that people send home, and the, the young men that fought began to, they just had this complete inability to, to comprehend the things that they were seeing, because they couldn't understand that one minute their friend was sitting there, and the next minute their friend was not sitting there anymore. It was just all over the place, literally. And I hate to be graphic, but it gives us that idea of what is Jesus talking about here when we read this. When we read these words concerning Jesus and His suffering, we have to understand them in a way. This is It's beyond human semblance. What He was is something that we wouldn't recognize as human. Now, He wasn't blown apart or anything, but through His suffering, He was disfigured in such a way that we would look upon Him and say, He's not even human. That would be our conclusion. Really bad movies have tried to capture this over the years. But there's just no way to capture what happened here to Jesus, what His crucifixion was actually like. And this is what's so astonishing, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the Lord of glory would subject Himself to this. And that the result of that would be him high and lifted up. That he would be exalted. Now we'd totally write this in a different way if it were left up to us. If if we were able to counsel God. We'd take out the suffering. We'd focus only on the good things. Right? We'd position Jesus in such a way that makes our salvation a way for us to be high and lifted up. Salvation we dream up merely uses Jesus as a means to achieve some great spiritual high by ourselves. Jesus isn't the prize of salvation. No, Jesus is only the means to that prize. Eternal life and even a fruitful Christian life. These things are great, but only if we have Christ. Christ is the goal. He is the prize of salvation. Jesus didn't become marred beyond human semblance to give us our best life today. Can you imagine if that was if that was the end of if salvation meant Jesus became marred so that I could just live a good life. Wow. That'd be crazy cuz I don't even know what that means. I'm so mixed up and sinful and crazy that I can't even understand that. He did so to be a ransom for his people, his sinful people, because they had no idea what even best life might mean. We still think, we still want to think that that has something to do with us. But none of this points to us. Who's going to be high and lifted up? It's not us. It was done on our behalf so that we could receive eternal, so that he could receive eternal glory and praise and honor. I'm often asked how the gospel is relatable to people who don't have things. You know, like how do we preach the gospel to people who are poor or who are really struggling with difficult life situations that, that their life is so hard. It's high. We need to take care of those other needs before we preach the gospel to them. And that just shows an underlying desire and an underlying misconception of the gospel that you have to have these other things before you can even understand Jesus or that your greatest need is other things and Jesus, which is crazy. 
Why should they listen to me if they're poor? Because their life is not hard or their life is not easy. It's because prosperity and well-being are not the promises of the gospel, brothers and sisters. The promise of the gospel is Jesus. The promise of the gospel is salvation from sin and from death, not from our difficulties, not from a hard life, not from a sinful world. Salvation, the prize of salvation is Christ, not prosperity. In fact, over and over in the New Testament, what are we told concerning the sufferings of Christ? That we're going to share in them. Not that we're going to be completely removed from them. What do you read from the New Testament writers? What is their, what is their greatest excitement and joy in life? That they might share in his sufferings. That's incredible when you measure that against a lot of what comes from pulpits today. And that's why we preach Christ, brothers and sisters, because the wisdom of this world, which is only searching for a worldly salvation, it's no wisdom at all, and it's no salvation at all. We preach Christ because he is the only salvation. This is something that shocks the world. That one would become marred beyond human semblance and yet be high and lifted up and exalted. And that brings us to the last point of surprising atonement. Look with me at verse 15. And so the way you read this, 14 and 15 are paired together. And it's just just kind of read, if you put the word just, I think it helps you to read that there in 14. Just as many were astonished at you, and it tells us about why we should be astonished, because his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. So shall, just as you, this, this is going to astonish you, so shall this will too, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, that which they have not heard, they understand. Notice what happens. When the world sees the salvation that the servant brings, they shut their mouths. It's not even something that they can fully understand, much less something that they would have dreamed of themselves. And again, if you follow the progression from 14, just as many were astonished at that salvation that it would come through someone who was marred and broken, so will many be astonished that he will sprinkle them with his blood. Now, I know it doesn't say with his blood there in 15, but that word sprinkle is tied directly to the atonement practices, especially the one that you see in Leviticus chapter 16. We're not going to read Leviticus 16, but Leviticus 16 is just about the day of atonement. I encourage you to read that for your own edification as it deals with this ceremony of atonement that the Jewish people went through every year, the atonement for their sins. We're going to look at a quick summary of that in Hebrews chapter 9. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. So as I'm attempting to find Hebrews in my Bible, there it is. Again, I strongly recommend Leviticus 16 to you. Leviticus is one of those chapters that we would skip over to get to the good parts. But Leviticus 16 points directly to Jesus. 
100%. I think it's just one of those chapters that's very good and it's good for a Christian to read. But look with me at Hebrews chapter 9, specifically looking at verses 11 through 15. And so again, back to our context, sprinkle, that idea of sprinkling with his blood. What does that mean? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the perfect and more the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by the means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The writer of Hebrews helps us to draw out this idea of what does it mean that he will sprinkle many nations? What is he sprinkling? Well, it was that idea of the atonement. The act of sprinkling in the Old Testament had to do with the blood of animals being sprinkled on this thing called the mercy seat, which symbolized the atonement for the sins of the people of God. It happened once a year on the Day of Atonement, still very important on the Jewish Calendar. It's called a Yom Kippur. Today, if you look on a Jewish calendar, you've probably seen that before and wondered what it was. Well, that's what it is. But the problem with the Jewish calendar today is that they're still doing this. They're still longing for this. They're not killing animals anymore. They're just, just kind of a figurative thing nowadays. But they're still looking for the one who this symbolizes. It fails to realize who those goats and those calves all pointed to. He entered once and for all, not by the blood of goats, but by his own blood. And so when we read that he will sprinkle many nations, this isn't obviously just for the Jews then, is it? But for all the nations of the world. And this act causes the kings of the world to shut their mouths. It's something so great as the atonement would follow something so awful as the crucifixion. This is absolutely astonishing. Brothers and sisters in the church, we we need to understand this. There's nothing else. There's no other way. More importantly for us, and what we struggle with, I think, in the church many times, is there's no way that we can add to this to make it a better atonement. He did this, what does it say in Hebrews? He did this once and for all. This is the blood of the Son of God we're talking about here. We can't add anything to it. There's nothing to add to the atonement of Christ that would make it better or more worthwhile. The blood of the very Son of God has infinite value infinity is not a number you can't add to it you can't add to it 
be absolutely pointless to add to something that has infinite value. In fact, trying to add to it is just wrong. According to Scripture, it's just heretical. And so then we ask the question, as we deal with this and as we're going to work further through this servant song and looking directly at the atonement of Christ, why then would we preach anything else? Why would I preach anything but the gospel? Why would I offer anyone but Christ? Not only does Christ give salvation to the unbeliever, but what about for us in the church? Do we need something else? Do we need Christ in this other thing? Nope. Still the same thing. He continues to supply the believer with every blessing, with every need. He keeps us. He supplies us. He sustains us. There is nothing that I can offer you from here other than Christ that would be worthwhile to you. Worldly wisdom may have some value in other realms. Maybe so. But when it comes to the message that we have as a church, the message that comes from this pulpit, the message that we teach in our classrooms, it is Christ and Him crucified. There's nothing else. And so if you're here this morning, you're hearing about that atonement for the first time, maybe you're hearing about this and this is astonishing to you, you may be like the kings of the world. You're in silence now hearing about the goodness of Jesus Christ. But there's only one proper response to that. Repent and believe. Turn from your own wisdom. Turn to Jesus Christ. Call upon his name and be saved. In conclusion, for the church, the atonement is an astonishing thing. It was accomplished wisely by our Lord Jesus. Let us be a people who not only hold this truth closely and rely on it daily, but let us be a people who seek to make it our only message. There is no other hope than the hope that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you this morning, we come as a people who would add things to the gospel because we forget. We look at the world, we look at the difficulties around us, and we think there has to be something else to help me. And there's not. Lord, please help us to cling closely to you. Lord, please help us to cling only to you, not only for our own sustenance in this world, but also as the message we preach. That would be only you. You are the only hope to a dying world. Lord, help us to be true to that message. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So at this time, please stand with me as we sing our response to God's word.